Yeah, when I forget my hat, I feel naked. I've said naked like 10 times this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember your exact words, but I love that you said something about basically you want to retire from where you're working. I'm a lifer, man. That's what you said, a lifer. It's really easy to love your work when you're surrounded by really great people. You're going to see a lot of who I am now, so please don't judge. I'm not judging. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. I ran into a medic recently, and he looked great. He looked rested and happy and healthy, and so I asked him to tell me the recipe of his secret sauce. And these were his words verbatim. He said, things got better once I realized this job was actively trying to kill me. He went on to tell me that he has to take purposeful steps to mitigate the effects of the job. And that's the nature of this work. If you float along unconsciously and don't take care of yourself, it can be hard to make a lifelong career of it. In this episode, our guest thinks he's sorted out how to become what has affectionately been called a lifer. They are the rare breed of medics who have managed to make a career of this bizarre job. And I think he's right. He seems to have pieced together a good chance at becoming a career medic. Listeners have said they come to Medic Mindset to remember what they loved about the job when they first started. If that's something you enjoy about it, I think you're in the right place with this episode. Listen in. I was going to read to you something. One of your coworkers, I asked them, said, you know that he is about to be the medic of the person you love the most in the world. Oh, crap. Here's the question I asked. Are you comforted by that? And what type of complaint would you hope your loved one had, i.e., like, what Mm -hmm. do you handle best? And the response was, this is verbatim. I could rest easy knowing that he was taking care of the person I love the most, especially if it was for a cardiac complaint. Mm -hmm. From the work I've seen him do for cardiac patients and his passion for developing training for his fellow medics, he is obviously a skilled and brilliant provider. Mm. He is direct and inquisitive, and I agree with both of those statements. And I couldn't have come up with those two words, but that, that is how you are. You're direct and inquisitive and definitely get shit done. That's very humbling. Oh, my goodness. That gives me some, yeah, like some like self-confidence. I think we don't get to tell each other much how we see each other as peers. We don't ask and we don't tell each other. Mm-hmm. Do you think stuff. we could assume it? Like, oh, they know. I don't know. That's a good question. Thinking back on like the great medics that I know, I don't know if I've ever directly told them like, you're really good at this. If my son, if I needed someone to be there, who would I like feel most comfortable with, you know? Mm -hmm. It'd be you. I've never really, hmm. People need to know they, they need to know that they, uh, they can handle their stuff. Why do you think he says cardiac complaint? My first dip into the medical field. So I worked as a floor tech. I got to, on a really busy floor. They did ablations all the time and one of the leading cardiologists worked there in the world. I got tired of working the floor because it was just hard. You're on a few 12 hours at a time and so there's a guy there. He was badass. He's from Oregon. He was on the monitors there. Um, we had like 30 patients or so and they all had monitors they're wearing and we also watched IMC and there's you know 15 beds in IMC and they're all wearing monitors and all of them were watched on one part of the floor by one or two people. I got a picture on my phone, actually. I'm in front of literally like seven screens, and mm. there's like 16 rhythms per screen that I'm watching. Whoa. Yeah. Anyway, so I got tired of the floor stuff, and I switched to nights, and started to get to know this guy, and he's just like, why don't you come do rhythms? You know, I'll teach you some stuff, and fell in love, man. 
fell in love with rhythm. This is before I went to medical school. Okay, well, that was my question was, what, was it before cardiology? Yeah, mm-hmm, it was. It before was. all of it. Yeah, it was. If you came back to teach, you think you'd pick cardiology? Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you be good at it, teaching um, it? I would hope so. Because I mean, you can be good at something but not good at teaching it. Yeah. You think you're good at transferring that knowledge? I think what makes a good teacher is someone that is able to take something complicated and explain it in a simple way. It's easy for like someone to take something complicated and explain it in a complicated way, but be able to take something that's rather complicated and not dumb it down, but make it in a package to where someone that's not where you are can understand it. Also, I think it makes a good teacher is someone that they don't, they're not in it for the information, they're in it for the people learning. Because even after 30 years, EMS can get kind of dry at points. And yeah. if, you, if your passion is the information, then you may struggle teaching that. But mm. if your passion is students and watching them learn, then, you know, they're always going to be there. Yeah, that helps me answer my question. People ask me, don't you get bored of teaching the same class? Because I teach trauma every semester. Uh-huh. Don't you get bored of that same content? I'm like, I'm not even thinking about the content. I'm thinking about their process mm-hmm. of learning. That's where my focus is now. Yeah. I have a Facebook group and I, asked, I told people that I was going to be interviewing somebody that's been doing EMS for four years. And what questions would they hmm. would they ask you? So I was going to ask you a couple. Far away. All right. One uh, guy, he said, at four years, you've seen a lot. That is just about the time you start to be susceptible to overconfidence. You start having problems with something called premature closure, where you think you know what's going on, but you haven't been like fastidious and collected tons of data to support your diagnosis. You're like, yep, seen that before. This is what it is. And you close the case, right? Case closed. Mm-hmm. How do you keep your head in the game and not fall prey to those types of things like overconfidence? And has it happened? And what have you done to try to fix that? Hmm. Yeah, it has happened. And the failure in that has helped me to not do it again. Yeah, you're right. I mean, at four years, you've you've seen a lot. It's easy to just go into auto mode and be like, it's a chest pain call. So we're going to do this and this and this. Or it's a fall call. We're going to go and do this and this and this and not be as open to other things that might be there mm-hmm. that you wouldn't see because you're an autopilot. And so that has happened before. I just tried to not do it again. Yeah. Um, I guess I just, I don't think I'm that big of a deal to be honest. And so I know I need to try every single call. I mean, not that I don't think I'm a good medic, but I don't think I'm like this badass, take the bull by the horns and all that. And like, I feel like every call like requires attention. And I just, I guess I fear failure so much that it makes me not, it helps me to not, you know, it's just people, it's people's lives, man. More people commented on this idea of overconfidence. Somebody said that they agree that years two to four are the most dangerous. And then I was like, dangerous for who? And they said that years one to two, you spend being scared to death to make a mistake, mm-hmm. but then you get confident and then you develop a host of uh, biases, uh, cognitive biases, and then you get your first clean kill. What does that mean? Clean kill is like a, you failed and you hurt someone. Mm. The failure that you referenced earlier, was it big big guy or little guy? Um, I guess big, yeah. Yeah, for sure. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Mostly I'm trying to get you to place. I wonder if you're willing to share your failure. Okay, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, so um, I've failed multiple times. First one is my first MI patient came out as a female who couldn't feel her legs. <laughs> couldn't feel her legs. What do you think, MI? <laughs> so, 
and we get to the house and it's a very nice house. Nothing that matters, but we were down in the basement in a very hard to get to place, a very narrow stairway. The patient's on the ground and her legs are raised and she looks kind of pale. I'm like, what's going on here? Put on the four lead or three lead and I see she's in third degree. That's okay. We'll do a 12 lead real quick. And then she was having a MI. She's having right sided MI. Getting her to the ambulance was hell because we couldn't just, oh man, like the getting her out of that small space through the narrow stairway was just, it was hard. But anyways, got to the ambulance. I had a firefighter drive, my partner and I, um, I think we stuck her like seven times. I tried and I tried the EJ, couldn't get an EJ and she, her pressure was like in the seventies and never could get a line. And I thought about drilling her, but she was conscious and pretty alert. And I, I didn't, mm-hmm. and I should have, I absolutely should have, um, and she ended up dying on the table. I don't know if that was because I didn't drill and give her fluids or not. I have no idea, but I know it wouldn't have hurt. It would have hurt, but I don't know if it would have like made a big difference or not. And that was the first patient I'd actually died that I knew that I knew about. And uh, I took her pretty hard. Um, and I still think about that call about like, would it have mattered? Would it have not mattered? I should have. I talked to a lot of medics about it and uh, our medical director about it and and everyone's consensus yeah should have absolutely um so so i have a couple of comments about that the first is i think that's really cool that you call that a failure um, because it is but a lot of medics forget that it's a uh, error of omission yeah and i think it's a really common one and we often people won't chalk that up to an error or a failure Mm -hmm. you know they didn't do further harm Mm mm-hmm but I think it's a really common novice error because uh, had you done an IO before? Yes. But not on a conscious person. Correct. Now you've had the patient that you know had the mm-hmm. indication and next time it will happen. Yeah. Right. But I think we have to go through that process sometimes yeah. because you don't have a mentor or preceptor there with you in those moments to be like, yep, this is the moment. Mm-hmm. You got to pull the trigger. I hate seeing people in pain. I got an EMS because I loved helping people. I hate seeing people in pain and the idea of inflicting pain on someone is going to hurt a lot, you know? And I just, I let that fear cloud my judgment. Just got to get over that. Realize sometimes there are worse things in pain. Yeah. So do you talk to, when students come right out with you or new medics, do you talk to them about that? About that, that incident? Yeah. That case or that, that concept of how you have Mm. to be in the mindset of, temporary pain for hmm. no i don't but i should because mm-hmm. that is a good point well you are right now yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep so the reason i wanted to invite you on the podcast was one specific reason and that is i ran into you recently mm-hmm. and you said i can't remember your exact words but i loved it you said something about basically you want to retire from where you're working i'm a lifer man that's what you said a lifer yeah are you a lifer for ems or a lifer for where you work both so I told the people on the Facebook group that, and there's some administrators and leaders in EMS that really wanted me to tease that out. Let's start with just what keeps you at that specific department. Mm-hmm. A lot of things. One of the main things, and it sounds freaking super cheesy, but the people I work with are badass, man. I love them. They're awesome. I've become good friends with a lot of them. They're great people. You know, It's really easy to love your work when you're surrounded by really great people. I've never dreaded going to work, ever. The people are amazing. So yeah. your peers and the supervisors, leaders? Mm-hmm. 
one of our big top dog people. It's just so easy to follow him because he he does his job because he sees that he can do something to help people and he does it and does it well and he doesn't let it go to his head. So when you say that your coworkers are badasses, do you mean in medicine or just in life? Yeah, both. We have some, man, so many different kinds of people I work with. They're really great medics that I absolutely, absolutely would trust with my 10-month-old son's life in their hands. I absolutely would. And I am protective as hell of that kid, so that says a lot. Yeah. They're also really, really cool. Like They have awesome interests. They're different than mine, and they're all different demographics, age-wise, ethnicities, backgrounds, experiences, and... Yeah, we get to hang out and... Do you think you'd be happy anywhere, though? I'm starting to pick up the vibe that you're like, eh, you're going to kind of be happy wherever you are. Uh, I have been in happy places before. Okay. But I try and be positive and make the best of a situation and focus on the good rather than the bad. So the people are good. The message is that places need to hire well. And, yes, and, and we hire, do a great job of that. Hire for personality and character traits, mm-hmm. not just the medicine. What are the characteristics that make them so nice to work with? Hmm. I think they, they're great medics and they, they know how to handle the pressure well and they know when to, like, it's time to get stuff done. It's easy to be around them. You know, they know their stuff. We have a great medical director who's pretty progressive. That makes doing medicine a lot of fun. And the fact that we're kind of rural, we can see some stuff work that we wouldn't normally get to see medicine work in the city, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of fun. Do y'all still have two trucks at one station sometimes? Mm -hmm. Because of that phenomenon, do you have the ability or does this happen where people will come back and talk about their cases? All the time. You can just tell people love their jobs because they're interested in talking about the cool stuff Mm -hmm. or the fact that they think stuff is cool in the first place. Yeah. You know? So we'll hear a call go out and we'll read the call notes because we have a computer that has all the calls and all the notes from all the calls and we can see that, you know, this truck's on this call and see the updates they're getting on the way to the call and the patient's doing this and this and this and what they're going to do, what are they going to do this, they're going to do this and they see where they transport to when they get back. It's like, all right, let's hear the story, you know, like, what's the story? Another awesome thing about our place is that, like, whenever someone has a code and the truck gets trashed, everyone comes out to help restock. Mm -hmm. It's not just like a, you're an ambulance by yourself cleaning stuff everyone everyone is out there helping them restock get the truck back together Mm -hmm. talking about the call what was it what'd you do what'd you think and i think that's really important and that's something that can only happen logistically if you have two trucks at one station yep that communal experience Mm -hmm. like that yeah it doesn't happen at the other station it doesn't but that helps it have that like family feel that helps the fact that there there used to be three trucks at central mm-hmm. at the central station there used to be three. And that was awesome because you would, there'd be six people there plus the captain plus students at admins on the side of the building. So, I mean, there could be 10, 15 people there. It's just like party time, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, that's, it's just fun. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll watch, we'll binge on Netflix or we'll go train and like spend like an hour and a half, two hours, like training and, it makes me want to come back. That's another question I was going to ask you later on. Okay. Yeah, the people are great where I work. That keeps me there. Mm-hmm. The pay is good. Benefits are competitive. The calls are cool because I'm so rural. Like I said, I can see stuff work. And I think the call volume is low enough to where my skills stay fresh and I'm not going to get burnt out. Right. And you need a balance of like busy enough to where your skills can stay fresh. At the same time, like not getting burnt out running 20 calls in 24 hours. We're in the country where I work and people wait till the last second to call sometimes because they're country and they, you know, throw some Windex on it or whatever. Like, I don't know, like they'll do whatever they can to not 
And then when they call, it's like, geez, should have called two hours ago. You know, mm-hmm. there's CHF for breathing 60 times a minute in the bathroom. Like, <laughs> why did you wait so long? Because mm-hmm. like, I didn't think I needed to. I don't want to go to the hospital. Yeah. Like, well, there you go, man. So you mentioned pay. Um, the pay has to be good enough, but it doesn't have to be crazy. Yeah. As much as I love EMS and my job and the people, it's a means to an end. I live for my family. And this job allows me to provide for them. And it's awesome that this job is awesome, that I can love my job mm-hmm. at the same time providing for them. But it's, it's a means to an end. I just happen to freaking love it. Yeah. Let's say they paid you half of what you make. You just wouldn't be able to do the job. Yeah. No. If they paid you 10000 less than what you make, could you do the job? Yes. And would you? <laughs> Hopefully your bosses Probably. aren't listening. Yeah. No, I, I think I would. Yeah. I totally think I would because you can make adjustments. I mean, 10 grand sounds like a lot, but I live in a dual income household and I can make it work. Uh Right. Everybody's situation is different. Yeah. I like to think about the threshold of pay. To me, all employers need to worry about is just paying enough. I mean, I guess for a certain career, some people are just like in search of monetary gain, but really it's about the quality of experience, Mm -hmm. especially if you think about EMS providers. It's like the amount of time you spend there. And then it becomes like the second home. It's got to be, it's got to feel good. Yeah, it does. But it's easy to tolerate low pay for jobs awesome. So where do you see yourself in four years? Same story? Yeah. Being the lifer? Yeah, unless something happens to my back. Maybe a little higher up in leadership in four years. Why? Because um, I feel like I would have the ability to affect people greater. I don't want to ever be a captain, man. I want to be in the truck forever and that sounds crazy mm-hmm. but i want to be in the truck forever i want to be where the, i want to have my hands where the people are often offices and stuff like i can't do that and i want to kind of be where the action is but four years from now same place making more money getting better at medicine seeing how it's changed looking back to now four years from now being like we did that do you remember any bits of advice you received from early mentors either in your educational process or when you first started in the field i have a horrible memory i did way too many drugs in college <laughs> not during not during med, medic school before that it's all fog um i remember people saying make the most of your clinicals I remember them stressing that because it's one thing to be in front of a book in front of a whiteboard and talk about all the different kinds of altered mental status there are it's another thing to be out there and see what it looks like and experience it smell the environment and hear the patient and I am just a hands-on kind of learner. Um, that advice was good because when I was there, I was like, let's put my knowledge to work into action. That's, that's why I learned. That's how it sticks the best is by doing. And have you paid that tip forward to any new yeah. medics? Yeah. Who have you told? Students? At the- yeah, students. Yeah, when students come, I'm like, this is this is the time when you can, everything you've learned so far, let's do it. Let's have your hands do what your brain already knows. First of all, I'm like, I've been a student before. Let's learn something and have some fun. I know you're nervous. I know you're uncomfortable. We're going to take things one step at a time and hopefully learn something cool and have fun. I remember one of the first, it wasn't advice. It was feedback I got. (laughs) My paramedic partner, I was an intermediate at the time in paramedic school. We did QA on the run forms from the previous shift. We would basically just look through them and kind of audit them and give some feedback or Mm -hmm. And she was having me read through the paramedic ones. And so I'm sitting across the dining room table from her. I'm at one end. She's at the other far end. 
And there's like other people there too. This was kind of an embarrassing moment because I said, you know, mm, I don't really feel comfortable doing this. And she looked at me. I think she even got up and like came over to where mm. I was. And she was like, you're not really going to feel comfortable a lot of the time in this job. <laughs> Wrong choice of words. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. It yeah. kind of cracked me into realizing like this is going to be hard and this is going to challenge me and you have to get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. That's a great way to put it. Getting out of your comfort zone is when that's when you it's when you learn stuff. It's when you make mistakes and you can learn stuff and part of me likes being uncomfortable. Cuz you know that's where the growth mm-hmm. is happening. Yeah. It's almost like when you work out, you like the pain. It's like, oh, this hurts. This is going to be so good, though. It's going to be so good. How often do you do the CrossFit? Two to three times a week. I usually do it after I get off shift. I thought I was in shape before I did CrossFit. Jeez, there are 40-year-old dudes and 30-year-old girls who are, like, kicking my ass out there. I do it because, like I said, I want to be doing this for a long time. Yeah. And I want a strong back. And I want strong legs. And I want to be able to lift patients and move patients without fearing hurting myself. CrossFit's great for that. It's not for everyone, but just do something. If it's not CrossFit, do something. Do something that strengthens your core and your legs and stuff. And and for me personally, like I have heart disease on both sides of the family. I want to be married a long time to my wife. I want to see my grandkids. I want to I want to be a medic for a long time. And working out is the best way to kind of preserve that. I don't eat very well. My wife is a dietitian, but okay. I eat like crap. And mm. that's one thing she's really trying to help me with. Slowly but surely, I'm trying to eat better because that's the other part of it. Well, and you're talking about all the physical benefits, but there's also this whole mental health piece of working mm, out. Yeah. Are there ever days when you get off shift that you're so freaking tired, you just drive by the CrossFit and go home and sleep? Mm. Or are there ever days that you want to, but you don't? How do you mm. make yourself go? On the days that I'm really tired, if I've had a rough call where I just got really kind of stressed out, I'll go just to kind of work it off. Um, but if I'm tired, I'll just go home and sleep and just only go like once that week. If your wife described you to somebody she just met at, at work or something, how would she? what would she say you are? Like, what are your identities? My identities. She would say he is a Christian, he is a husband, he is a father, and he is a medic. She wouldn't say CrossFitter? No, she probably would. You're yeah? right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really into it now. Well, I can yeah. tell. Yeah, I, I was not before. Oh, man, it's so good. Yeah, I was like, I worked out in college and I played soccer for many, many years and thought I was pretty, pretty in shape. You know, like I, you know, I thought I was in shape and then CrossFit just humbled the hell out of me, Hmm. (laughs) like big time. Mostly like your core strength or what? It's everything. So CrossFit is everything. It's, it's across the board fitness. Mm -hmm. It's balance. It's endurance. It's explosive movements. It's strength, it's flexibility, it's everything. Right. Every day is different. They'd hardly ever repeat workouts, ever. So you talked about your wife. Mm-hmm. You guys got married while you were in paramedic school. Yeah, third semester of cardiology. I think I remember you proposing to her and you did it at the hospital. I did, great memory. So you have been married four or five years? Five years just recently. Nice, congrats. Is she friends with your coworkers? Yeah, um, because I live, I don't live in the city that I work in. I live around further away. Um, I don't hang out with them a lot, but I do hang out with them some. She has met them more than a few times, and yeah. she loves them. And that helps because, you know, she wants to meet the people that I'm with for a third of my life. I think it's so important. Yeah. I really do, to not have that separation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want the separation, but yet you also need those two worlds to know each other. And that helps, like, being a married person, being in the same room with a woman sleeping, yeah. you know, in different beds, but in the same room, like... 
I totally understand. And like, if she was working at a job where I wasn't with her for a third of the time and a third of that time, she could be with some dude, you know, in the same room sleeping. Yeah. Like, ah, so be good. If I got to know that dude, I'd feel more comfortable. Right. I think that's important. Yeah. So has EMS had any effects on your relationship, positive or negative? With the wife? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mostly negative. Yeah, mostly <laughs> negative. It's hard to see her. Like I work every three days for 24 hours and the hardest part is being away from her because she works five days a week at nine to five. Even on the days that I'm off, I don't see her till, you know, when she gets home after that. And then I work on the weekend sometimes when she has full days off. So it is an easy schedule for a, mm-hmm. for a couple. But I can't think of anything really positive, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So it's just quantity. I mean, it's just quantity yeah. of time. You just don't have the yeah. numbers. You just don't have the hours. Mm-hmm. It's great for a single person. EMS is great for no family, living on your own, which is why maybe people just are in and out in five years. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it may have something to do with it. Yeah. Can you think of any experiences, life experiences, before you started EMS that prepared you for the skills you've needed on the job? So there's more to being a paramedic than just taking care of sick people, right? There's yeah. this whole this whole thing. Hmm. Like, what'd you do before EMS? I was uh, in banking, and I was, oh. before that, I was at Starbucks for seven years. That'll help. That, man, both those jobs were, were good, because I got to really deal with people that got angry and kind of learned how to handle conflict. Conflict is going to happen. Starbucks... Saturday morning, you're on the bar, 10 cups lined up, and you're like going ferociously making drinks. It's fun, but you know, you do something wrong, and someone, their coffee's not right, and they're irate about it. And it's like, it's just coffee, dude, but to them, it's not just coffee. It's the start of their day, and that has to go right. And yeah. working under pressure there, which is not the same as working under pressure in EMS, but it is working under pressure with people watching you kind mm-hmm. of thing. That definitely helped multitasking, multitasking while trying to like, interact with people yeah, i never thought about the starbucks we're all just kind of staring at the poor baristas oh yeah i can feel you staring okay i, can I need feel to quit it. doing that then. i can feel it i mean i'm just staring at you the way i stare sure. at a coffee pot in the morning yeah it's like all right do your thing <laughs> if you were stressed on a call would your partner know it when i get stressed i get quiet and i do this i'm biting my lip right now in case you can't tell the bottom lip yeah the bottom lip thing i'm like and my eyes get bigger too. When I get like crazy stressed on a call, I'll just kind of get quiet. And I'll just. <laughs> That's not the good face you want to see in a call, right? That's no, okay. It's all right. But, um, but it doesn't last very long. I'll do that and then I'll have a plan and be like, okay. And then we'll do the plan. The more amped up a patient is, the more calm I'm going to be to try and. Right. You know, yeah, the crazier a scene is, the calmer I'm going to be. You know, I do know. Not to show a lack of caring, but just to like lead medic sets the tone even how i respond like a call comes out cardiac arrest or whatever all right received in route it starts in the very beginning the tone is going to be set at the very beginning right you know and it's purposeful to balance mm-hmm. the nature of the call was it always like that no <laughs> no it wasn't in the beginning i was very amped up and i'm high energy as it is mm-hmm. like i'm very high energy in case you can't tell yeah people at work say i do everything with gusto I walk fast. I like when I mop the floors, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like high energy, everything, you know. I don't know why that is, but I'm just really, Nature. yeah, I guess so. On the radio in the beginning, I was very amped up and didn't really have good radio presence kind of thing. I've gotten better about that. How did you get better at that? <laughs> did somebody point it out to no, you? No, I heard myself. So after a call one time, 
I called dispatch to get some information that I hadn't gotten. Yeah, they had times and stuff that our computer didn't have. And I heard them play back the call and I heard myself on the radio and I was talking. And I was like, is that me? <laughs> oh my gosh. I was like, I do not sound like I'm in control. I'm like, okay, that's got to change. That's got to change. Isn't that useful? Yeah. I mean, I could tell with the tone and how I was speaking and everything, I did not sound like I was in control or confident. I opened her for sure, big time. There are a lot of people in medical education that want, want us to do a lot more videotaping of ourselves mm. so we can watch ourselves. A lot of people in hospital want to videotape codes and resuscitations. And because of that very thing, it's like, yeah, it's really hard for one adult to give another adult that feedback. For them to be like, dude, you're a spaz. But you can just hear it for yourself. Hearing it was enough. No one had told me I could hear it for myself, but I was like, and I'm critical of myself anyway, so I mean. So when you heard that, the very next time you were on the radio, you were just more mindful? Mm-hmm. I spoke slower. I spoke with a l- l- less volume. I held the radio like closer and then spoke, you know, more softly. All of a sudden, this door flies open and someone brings you a sick person. What is the worst condition was what is the thing you would not want it to be what are you the most afraid of or feel the least well equipped to handle a 10 month old baby because of my son yeah (laughs) yeah that's got i mean that's i had a sick baby recently i did not handle it how i thought i would have handled it i thought i'd be able to have more control and think more clearly on the fly and i wasn't able to do that yeah it sucked baby was fine but it potentially could have been bad it could have been a potentially critical very critical patient and when the call came out and then i heard the age and everything i was like oh shit i just wasn't able to kind of get in the right mindset you know the whole call just felt kind of out of my skin didn't feel everything came hard nothing came easy and doing things just uh, it didn't didn't go well and um, my mind just wasn't able to like focus like it usually does is there anything about being a paramedic that's hard that you didn't realize was going to be hard that i didn't realize was going to be hard Something that I knew was going to be hard, that is still hard, that I thought I'd get better at was telling people that their loved one is dead. Uh, that's hard. I've never been able to get good at that or feel like I did a good job. But I don't know if you can do a good job at that. You know? Oh, I think you can. Yeah? I think you can do it. You can definitely do it poorly. Yeah. Um, what do you do? Eye contact. I'm very clear with them. I'm good at reading people, and sometimes I kind of put my hand on the shoulder. Um, sometimes I won't, but I, if, I, if I can read them well and know that they're okay with that or whatever, like clear with what I'm saying, and but also show um, remorse or just like re- not not regret, but like I'm sad, like sadness, like genuine, like a life has been lost, and I'm sorry. At first, I think I, um, I I was too nervous, and it came off as like. Um, what did it come off as? Rushed. Yeah. It came off as rushed. I felt kind of like insecure and didn't really know what to do or who to call or because there's a lot that has to be done in the, in, at the end of a code and it came off as rushed. But now it's a lot more deliberate and clear and I recognize the loss that has happened and I am very sorry. The rushed part is wise. Creating that space, that emptiness, mm-hmm. creating the quiet, creating the space and time for them to do whatever they're going to need to do. Yeah, that's really good. And just being still and quiet mostly and nearby. Yeah. Close, physically close. Yeah. And ask them if there's anything we could do, anyone that we can call, anything that you need. When I said that you could do it wrong, I think what I mean is 
that's a moment that they're always going to remember that yeah. moment. Um, not doing anything like majorly distracting, I think is important. Like it's not about you. Like, exactly. You don't need to do this big, huge performance. They're processing. Just actually just give them space and time. Do you ever take showers during shift? I am so awkward being naked at work. But no one's in there with I you. I know, but it's a fact. I'm standing there and I'm naked and I'm at my job because I work out all the time at work. Even then, I'll, I won't shower even though I'm sweaty because I just hate being naked at work. It's just so awkward. I don't know why. Even though I'm like, no one's seen me. It's just, and I'm like not, I'm pretty, I don't know, bold when it comes to stuff like that. But just at work being naked and like, I don't know if I can, uh, I'll make it a quick shower real quick, real quick, real quick. <laughs> do you ever do it? Do you ever yeah, jump in there? But it's only on 48s. Could a tone drop and you have to get out and take a call on that 48? Are you in like a little bubble zone? Um, yeah. And then you just haul ass out of there. Well, that was always my fear. Mm -hmm. The only place I've showered has been at our central station. Um, there's another truck there that can cover for you. The being naked, you think it's just about like a psychological, like you're not armored up. Yes. Like you, you have your defenses down. Yes. It's gotta be that, right? Yes, absolutely. And it shouldn't be because I'm in, I'm closing the bathroom, but I don't know. Well, I think this goes to the mindset. Like you're Mm -hmm. always just a little bit ready. You're always just a little bit not relaxed. Mm -hmm. That's very true. I remember the longer I did it, the more parts of my uniform I would take off to sleep in. That makes so much sense. But first, everything but the boots. Yeah. And then I started noticing like some of these experienced medics, they were like taking their pants off, getting comfy, you know? Wow. At the slow station. Yeah, sure. You can get a full night's sleep without those nasty pants yep. on. Hmm. I've had done that. I only just, I take my boots and my socks off. You take your socks off? Isn't that crazy? I'm weird about socks. My feet have to be able to breathe. Especially on a 48, there is nothing like putting on a fresh pair of socks. It's Ugh. so good. It's just like you it's feel like so a new good. man. New underwear is one thing, but new socks. I do that too. So with the slower stations, I won't um, sleep in my shirt, my real, my just my button-down shirt during the day. During the day, I won't sleep in my button-down shirt because it's really starchy and stiff and just itchy and stuff. And so I won't sleep in there. I'll hang it up next to the bed. Um, and during the night, our polos aren't that um, that that uncomfortable. But I will take off my socks. And not only that, you're gonna laugh at me. Not only that, but I'll roll up my pants to like uh, to where my knees are. So I have I just like just breathe. Like just take your pants off. I just uh, that's another like one of those things. It's closer to being naked at work. Yeah. And I just don't want to. Mm. Even though I feel like I have a great body, I don't want that to. <laughs> <laughs> my wife's eyes only. Do. do you always wear a hat? Oh yeah. Always. I didn't used to, but my hair has started to thin recently. And I didn't think I was that vain, but I must be because I'm 35 and my hair is much thinner now than it was before. Um, yeah, when I forget my hat, I feel naked. Mm-hmm. I feel, I've said naked like 10 times this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> think of the person you care for the most. I guess a family member mm-hmm. right now in your life. Okay. Now think of that person starting their first shift and you can only give them one word of advice. What would it be? I would say relax and you're not alone. You have your partner, you have your captain, you have your firefighters, volunteer firefighters. You're not alone, so relax. Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah. That's the advice I would have wanted to hear too when I first started. Yeah. Like, remember a few key priorities. Yeah. 
airway breathing circulation it's so cliche but like if you can just focus on those and get through the call like you'll slowly start accumulating these experiences assuming you know the material assuming Mm -hmm. you have the skill set already just relax relax how would how how would you tell them to relax however they relax if you relax you know listening to certain kinds of music or eating certain kind of food or some people just have their finicky things they do to just relax yeah for me it'd be listening to music that calms me down or listening to a podcast recently i've been in the into some podcasts and that's been what do you listen to medic mindset (laughs) i wasn't fishing what what else do you i'll show you okay Here's my podcast list. You're going to see a lot of who I am now, so please don't judge. I'm not judging. Okay. Those are the four that I listen to. Uh, It's me and a bunch of white dudes. (laughs) (laughs) He is a very, very well-known pastor in New York City. He's doing amazing work there. He is a very, very well-known pastor in, I think, Milwaukee. And he is a, a, a political personality. What job would you have done if EMS didn't exist? Because I love athletics and I love people and I love kids. I would love to be like a, a soccer coach slash teacher. Let's say you are like the training a training officer where you work. Okay. That's a lot like being a coach. That's true. I am. Like I just started, um, I'm going to start helping train the new hires and I'm um, clearing someone right now. Oh, nice. So you new. are doing that. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like coaching. It is knowing the kind of person that you have and how they receive feedback best mm-hmm. and knowing how they are coached best and what they know, how they need to communicating, how to best communicate critique. Yeah. Feedback. That's a big deal. And we talk about all that with a guy that I'm with right now. I asked him like, Hey, how do you like, how do you best receive, you know, critique? You know, we were ran some calls together and I was a certain way on scene and how I talked to him and let him do his thing. I was like, afterwards, like, Hey, was that okay with you? How I, and how I interacted with you and, um, so lots of communication. How do you do it during a call? It depends where, like if it's early on in the stage, I let them do as much as they can. And if they appear like they're kind of like stuck on what to do, I'd be like, okay, so what do we know so far? What, what things could this be? Like what, nice. what would, what kind of things would cause this? You know, mm-hmm. um, what are some things you could put on the patient right now that would help clear things up? You know, like, I like those questions. Yeah. I like that. Those are yeah. prompts that yeah. really get them thinking mm-hmm. and make them think out loud. And what do we know so far? I yeah. love that question. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Where'd you get that one? I don't know. It just kind of happened. Like it just, it's just kind of, it's kind of how I think internally, you know, it's just my own thought process internally. It's like when I'm on scene and I'm like, okay, give me this or this. Wait, hold on. What do we know so far? But it's not starting back to the beginning, but it's like, okay, let's get clear. What do we know for sure? Kind yes. Of thing. I love that. Yeah. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice as you started paramedic school, what would you say to yourself? It is not the end of the world to fail a skill. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. No, in fact, it's sometimes good. Yeah. I would tell not. I would tell all students that also. Why would you tell them that? For me, for me, I don't know this applies to everyone. For me personally, this was not just for me, but for my family. Like this is a big deal. This is something to take very seriously. I just feel like there was a lot of a lot of pressure riding on the success of school. When I failed PD intubation, um, which is common. The padding. I didn't pad the shoulders. I just like I just had a freak out moment. What does this mean? Like going to like the worst conclusions possible, and like I retried it and it was fine. It's it's okay to fail a skill. That is excellent advice. I routinely, at least once a semester, will have a student that's just started the program, and they'll tell me my goal is to get through this program and never fail a skill. 
I get what they're saying. Like they want to be good. They want to work hard. They mm-hmm. want to practice. They want to like, that's, it's a reasonable goal, but you can't attach too much value to that because you can pass all your skills and that doesn't necessarily mean you're good to go. I would rather them attach value to every single time I'm with a patient. I want them to leave that experience feeling like I was there with them or I was present for them in touch with them. Those are the kind of goals. Yeah. They should be told that in the first semester. So what would you tell them exactly? Yeah, I I would say don't be shocked if you fail a skill and it is not the end of the world if you do. Right. It's no reflection on your future. And that's the wrong thing to focus on. Right. You're focusing on the wrong thing. Yeah. It's like they attach their self-worth or something to it. When you said that you spun out or whatever, it was yeah. just like you question more. Yeah. You question a lot of Yeah. I questioned like, like yeah, I was like, man, can I do this? What if I fail? What does that mean? What are their plans after that? Like, what if, and it's like, no, just calm down, take a deep breath, do your thing. Yeah. I'll do that sometimes with students that are in like a high stakes scenario. We'll, yeah. we'll do what I call fear setting and I'll say, okay, like let's go, let's chase this all the way down to the end. What's the very worst thing that could happen here? Now that I've seen students have to repeat a semester, have to repeat a class or have to repeat testing a skill. And I've seen those, those students go on to be like really Mm-hmm. competent, happy. Yeah. I know, I know one of them, one of the, one of the people that graduated with me, she had ever take a course and she's glad that she did. Mm-hmm. She's glad that she did. Oh, thanks for all your time. Where's your baby right now? He's in daycare. We'll go get him. I will. Signing off. Do you have a sign off thing that you no. do? No, it's a, it's like a, a sign off that I don't have a sign off. That's, what, <laughs> that's your thing. Never change that. I don't have a sign off. That's good. I don't think people listen to the end anyways. I have questions for you, Ginger. I'm kind of (laughs) nervous. The tables have turned. First question for Ginger. Thank you for letting me ask you questions, by the way. We'll see if you post it. I'm thankful that you wanted to ask me some questions. Well, I'm very curious because as a student, I would have loved this. Okay, here's a question. You've been in EMS for a long time. You see what, what tools we have and we don't have and what's come and gone and with right now, what we have, what's one skill or tool that you wish we could have or something that we could do in the field that we don't currently have or can do in the field? Mm-hmm. I think the majority of our mission, we have what we need to accomplish it. To me, one of our main missions is to make sure people are comfortable so we can treat their pain and anxiety. Mm-hmm. If I call EMS, that's one of the main things I'm going to want. The other main mission is cardiovascular support. Keep my end organs perfused. So when you think about adding a tool, it sounds fun and it sounds great, but anytime that you add something to a system, that sometimes can mean you're subtracting from the system as far as training goes. As a professor, I've got these five semesters, two years to really prepare a paramedic to be an entry-level paramedic. Any added tools, that just means I've got to lessen the load somewhere else. I think that we spend a lot of time on physical exam techniques, some of the more... um, I would call them like classical physical exam things that were useful prior to imaging in the hospital. Mm, Yeah. That's why we've needed them is because we don't have imaging. The information that you can gather with heart tones and percussion, technologically speaking, I think we're finally getting to the place where the technology of ultrasound has gotten small enough and starting to become affordable in the pre-hospital setting that I would love to see what's called point-of-care ultrasound. That would be a paramedic having the ability, you know, connected even to an iPhone or a tablet. Um, And there's tons of uses for ultrasound. There's 
uh, looking for pneumothorax or blood in the belly or pericardial tamponade. I mean, there's so many clinical indications that, especially like in a rural environment where you're trying to decide if to put somebody on a helicopter or not. And it's fun. That sounds it's so cool. It's fun to look inside. Hearing you talk about it makes me like geeked for the future because hopefully that happens. Oh, it's so close. It's so close. That's so It just has to get a little more affordable. Yeah. Yeah, what were you thinking? I didn't, honestly, I didn't know. I had no idea. What would you want to do? Ultrasound now. Okay, Ginger, where do you see this podcast in five years in terms of impact or number of listeners, reach, that kind of thing? It is not something I think about regularly. I actually don't think about it down the road. I only think about it episode to episode. I'll spend, like with this episode, I'll spend a month obsessing over it. Yeah. It's a problem. If I could push a button in five years and like try to visualize where I would want it to be, I'd like it to become kind of a household name where people in EMS know what medic mindset is and that it's a place that they come to after shift, on their way to shift. It's a place of like comfort, relief, solidarity. I hear other medics talking about things that sound familiar to them, that they relate to. I guess comfort from knowing that they're not alone in their experiences. They're kind of bizarre experiences. That's good. Yeah. To not feel like you're alone in that is big. Anybody that's making something creatively, they'd, they'd be lying if they said they didn't want like lots of people to see it and hear it and experience it and reflect on it and get it in the ears of a lot of people. So that's true. I mean, I, I hope I want a lot of people to listen and I want them to listen because it's valuable, useful, and it ideally would bring two medics together and those two medics, it would like start conversations between them. And that's why earlier I was asking you, you said something. I said, well, do you ever tell the new guys that? And you're like, oh, I don't think I have. Right. So we need that. Yeah. I mean, you are through this medium, but ideally we just start doing more of that mentoring within the ranks. And so this encourages that, hopefully. 